0: I really do doubt that there is any conversion that is more studied carefully and considered from all kinds of different angles than the conversion of martin luther it has been examined from so many different angles psychoanalyzed trying to figure out what led him and so forth Uh, but it seems very very clear that it was the lord jesus christ who Got a hold of his life. As you read the life of Martin Luther, you begin by wondering what was it that led him the way that he did to reject the Roman Catholic system and to embrace the gospel of Paul that we find in the book of Galatians and also in the book of Romans. In other words, as he was wrestling with his sins and fighting for peace in his life in the Roman Catholic way, Why was he not satisfied with what his own church taught him? For if there is anything that we know about Luther, it was that he really, really tried to be saved by that system. He dove into it, as it were, with both feet. Uh, He looked for life from God through the merit system that had been established and had grown up in the Roman church. He didn't go at it in halves, but threw himself into what he thought was the way of salvation. In answering that question as to why these things took place, two things at least form part or maybe most of the answer. The first thing that we have to realize about Luther is the realism that was in him regarding the fear of God and eternity. This was a man who had several brushes with death and Believed firmly in eternity and the judgment, and how do you deal with your sins? Um, At Erfurt, um, as a young man, he accidentally cut one of his arteries and came close to to bleeding uh, to death. Another attack of sickness brought him uh, once again near death's door. And then the sudden death of a friend brought eternity front and center to his soul. And then later on, a pestilence raged in Erfurt. And again, it was as though Satan's tongue was licking at his heels. And of course, we're all familiar with what took place on July the 2nd, 1505, where during a thunderstorm as he was running, he um, had a a bolt of lightning hit right next to him. And he cried out with those famous words, help me, Holy St. Anna, I will become a monk. So this is a man who is gripped with the realities of life, of death, of time, and of eternity, of sin, and God, and God being holy. So off he goes to the monastery uh, against the wishes of his father who wanted him to become a lawyer. His response to that um, desire of his father later expressed, showed the bent of his mind. He said, show me a lawyer who loves the truth. And so here is a man who is an honest soul. So off to the monastery and into the deep end of finding peace by the works that would meet him there in that place. One of the best biographies, I think as, as far as I know, is the best is still Roland Bainton's Here I Stand. And in his own words, listen to how he dove into um, this pursuit of salvation. One of the privileges of the monastic life was that it emancipated the sinner from all distractions and freed him to save his soul by practicing the counsels of perfection. Not simply charity, sobriety, and love, but chastity, poverty, obedience, fastings, vigils, and mortifications of the flesh. Whatever good works a man might do to save himself, these Luther was resolved to perform. He fasted, sometimes three days on end without a crumb. The seasons of fasting were more consoling to him than those of feasting. Lent was more comforting than Easter. He laid upon himself vigils and prayers in excess of those stipulated by the rules. He cast off the blankets permitted him and well nigh froze himself to death. At times he was proud of his sanctity and would say, I have done nothing wrong today. Then misgivings would arise. Have you fasted enough? Are you poor enough? He would then strip himself of all, save that which decency required. He believed in later life that his austerities had done permanent da- damage to his digestive system. I was a good monk, he says, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other works, all such drastic measures and methods gave no sense of inner tranquility. I remember hearing a message by the late D. James Kennedy, and he was talking about um, salvation by works, and he used Luther as uh, as an illustration. He said, "Do you really, really want to get to heaven by your good works?" I think most people really are not trying to get to heaven by good works. You really want to get to heaven by your merits? Go look at this man who really, truly tried. This is a man who tried it. You're not that man. He tried it, and it did not bring peace. It didn't bring him closer to God, closer to Christ. And here is the second side of the matter. Here's this man of realism who has an opportunity to pursue salvation by the system that he had inherited in his Roman Catholic roots. But the other side of the matter is the most dangerous side, and that is the false gospel that was being taught in that day. Jesus was not presented as available to sinners, he was not the way, the truth, and the life as we find in John's gospel chapter 14 to the medieval believer the medieval follower of roman catholic teaching jesus was the implacable judge not of not a rather of a john's revelation than the savior in john's gospel jesus sat far above all principalities and powers and might and dominions he was unapproachable He was far off, and so the picture there was that the only way that you could get to him was to follow this pyramid that had been erected by the church, made up of saints, and especially of Mary on the one hand, and doing deeds of obedience that would merit your somehow being brought at last to Jesus, the judge. Jesus was not the Savior. The church was the Savior. Salvation was not by faith alone, but by fulfilling all of your duties, which, if you fell short, won you thousands and thousands and thousands of years in purgatory. It was not then until the winter of 1512 and 1513 that the gospel finally broke through the heart of Martin Luther. It was through the teaching of the book of Psalms that he was given uh, to pursue Um, and the patient instruction from a very faithful man by the name of John Staupitz, these were instrumental. But it was Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that proved to be the holy ground of the gospel for Luther. The just shall live by faith. He finally got the truth of that. Going back to the Greek instead of the Latin, the Latin itself made it sound as though uh, the, the righteousness that that was being offered there in the gospel was the attribute of God. It's by God's attribute of righteousness that somehow we're accepted, which didn't fit. And he recognized it was not God's justice that saved us, but it was this gift uh, uh, through his son freely given uh, unto uh, those who believe. Again, in his own words, He says of this, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to be, Thus it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart, in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain, as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. That's his own expression of coming to faith. Another uh, passage speaks about how he was, he was totally in the dark. He found a rope. And he pulled it, and to his surprise and delight, there was a bell on the other end that rang out of his salvation. That's how he describes his conversion. He put it to poetry. In devil's dungeon chained I lay, the pangs of death swept o'er me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life, and sin had made me crazy. Then was the father troubled sore to see me ever languish. The everlasting pity swore to save me from my anguish. He turned to me his father heart and chose himself a bitter part. His dearest did it cost him. Thus spoke the son, hold thou to me. From now on thou wilt make it. I gave my very life for thee, for thee I will stake it. For I am thine and thou art mine. And where I am, our lives entwine, the old fiend cannot shake it. He found salvation, steadfast and sure, in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, who stretched those arms out in love to save him. So dear ones, here are the two points regarding the recovery of the gospel. We're looking at these five points of the Reformation that are still so pivotal today, looking at the word this morning and tonight looking at the gospel. And the first of these two points is that the gospel is not a do, but a done. The gospel is not something that we do, that we accomplish It is something that we simply receive. It is something that God himself has done in his son. It's not an imperative to perform, but it is a declared indicative, a fact, something that is accomplished. And who accomplished it? There's the point that we're bringing out here in Luther's conversion. It's not a far-off judge named Jesus, but the Savior Jesus who has become bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, who died for our sin in order to overthrow the devil's kingdom? He who said, I came into this world not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through me, continues to have the same attitude, even though he is exalted far above all of the angels and all of the creation. In other words, though Christ is glorified now in unimpeachable and unspeakable and unparalleled glory, The same loving, kind, tender, gracious heart beats in him as when he was his lowest here on earth, when he was forgiving his very enemies, his accusers, those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The same attitude of welcoming the impenitent thief into paradise with his last breath and giving his life a sacrifice for the sins of the world. We need to read beyond the glory of Revelation chapter 1 and come to the the vision there in chapters 4 and 5 and see that the one who is in glory is still the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Indeed, the gates of paradise are open for all who will come to him and come directly by faith and faith alone. He doesn't just show us the way, He is the way, He is the door, He is the gate of paradise. So behind this salvation by grace is the very graciousness of God himself, the triune God. The father is a true father who spares nothing for us. When he gave us his only begotten son, he delivered him up for us all so that through him he might give us all things. The son of God himself is the king of grace who loves to save the lowliest and the neediest. It seems like pride is the one thing, the central thing that kills us. We're so stuck upon our own selves. But he comes to us meek and lowly of heart, bending to us like the good Samaritan, pouring oil and wine into our wounds and making us whole. The true Christian is not one bound up in the chains of the law and of duties and and all of this, uh, 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 all these commands to do, do, do. It is rather the one who is the Lord's freedman, who comes and is welcomed as the prodigal, received into the arms of the Father. As we bring this point up to our day, we see how this principle of the Reformation is so relevant for us. Remember, this isn't just a history lesson. This isn't a, let's pat ourselves on the back that we understand these doctrines. But it, it, it is vital for us as believers and as a church today, what impediments are we putting before sinners for them to come immediately to Christ? What hoops have we invented for them to jump through before they can come and embrace Christ? What deeds of the works of the law must first be fulfilled before Jesus can become accessible? And this has, has historically been a part of even the Presbyterian Church. There was a great controversy in Scotland back in the 1700s called the Merrill Controversy that basically set up all of these hoops. Before you can even think of repenting of your sin, before you can even think of coming to Christ, you must go through all these machinations before Christ is offered freely to you. And men like Thomas Boston and his ilk rose up rightly against Those things. You can read about that in the excellent book by Sinclair Ferguson, The Whole Christ. Christ is offered wholly to sinners, as sinners, even sinners who are not yet feeling the weight of their sin. The preaching of the gospel will bring across that weight and that need of turning in faith to the Lord Jesus. Perhaps we have some of the things like that today. Do we expect people, first of all, to wash the outside of the cup before they can have the inside cleansed and filled by the Savior? Do we put impediments before unbelievers in our worship, in our church, that makes them first learn how to sing maybe the difficult songs of Zion before learning the ABCs of the Christian faith? The freeness of Christ offered to sinners should be guarded and prized by us. It should be marked with freedom to come straightway to him. Jesus, look at the titles that he takes to himself. He is the savior. He is the redeemer. He is the reconciliation. He is the way. He is the full satisfaction for sin. He is the prince of peace as the mediator between God and man who brings us together. Now that is point one the availability of Christ the Savior. That's what the Reformation, and Luther in particular, discovered. He is not this far-off judge exclusively. He is also imminent and brings the gospel offer uh, to the most needy, to the chief of sinners. And then the second point is just as crucial, that the full righteousness given us, found in justification by faith, is apart from works. Good works do not form the basis whatsoever of our being forgiven of all of our sins and counted righteousness before God for the sake of Christ. The righteousness that is our salvation is not our righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness. Our being declared righteous, accepted in the beloved, is not of ourselves personally, but it is placed upon us legally forensically. God does not look on a sinner as a sinner and say the sinner is not a sinner. The the gift of justification is something that happens outside of us and not inside of us. Um, The righteousness is placed upon our account. You see, the opposite of righteousness in justification, this new record that the Lord gives us, is not being unrighteous personally. The opposite of the righteousness of God in justification is condemnation. It's the sentence that you are condemned because of your sins. Again, a forensic category. John Bunyan wrote, Our sins, when laid upon Christ, were yet personally ours and not his. There's a forensic category. So likewise, his righteousness when put upon us is yet personally his and not ours personally. It's ours truly, but it's the righteousness of Christ. So Paul speaks of a righteousness not his own in Philippians chapter 3. After a lifelong um, sanctification and living for the Lord, even at the end he says, I wait to be found in the righteousness of Christ and not my own. The moment works enter into the equation, into the foundation, it's like you have crossed a 220 line and a blue explosion takes place and the room becomes immediately pitch black. That is another gospel, as Paul put it in Galatians chapter 1, which is not another gospel. It is no gospel, as Luther himself found, found out. The gospel of grace is from God. The gospel of works is from man. The gospel of grace is by faith. The gospel of man is by works. Do you remember a couple weeks ago I quoted a particular author? I think he uh, served at either Oxford or Cambridge. He went and translated. He was one of the best linguists the world has ever seen. And translated all of these religious texts from all of these different religions. From the Near East to the Far East. Uh, into, into English. And he said, across the board, every single one of them have this same theme. We are saved by our good works. This stuff is in our very bones, as though somehow we can be good enough for God. And the Bible hammers away at this. We can never be good enough. There is none who is righteous, no, not one. There is none who is good. There's none even who properly seek after God if we're coming to him in this other way, coming as it were through a back door, like a thief. The Bible has opened the door wide of grace, of a righteousness freely given, received as a gift by faith and faith alone. Notice the language in Galatians. Look at a couple other passages in this great book. Favorite book of, of Luther's. He called it his, did he call it his Katie? It's like his wife. Wow. All right. Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 16. Notice what he says here. Go back to to verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In one verse, three times, not by works. Not by works, not by works, not by works. That's not the gospel. If you have some works coming in to the foundation of your your salvation, you are rocking the very foundation that God has given to us in the Bible. Look again at the end of this chapter, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, by works then Christ died needlessly. It's, it's absolutely opposite to the cross, you see. And then in chapter 3, 6 through 14, you have this picture of, of Abraham. He believes. And if you have faith, then you're on the side of Abraham. And then on the opposite is law. You are cursed with works. If you're looking to the law for what it was never, ever intended to do to be a basis of your justification, Either Christ has made a curse for you and your sins, or you must bear that weight. Either Jesus pays for your sins, you pay for your sins. That's a no-brainer in my book. And then again in chapter 4, 21. Um, it can't be 21 through 21. That would be a really short reading. Um, it's 21 through 31, excuse me. Here's the way of freedom. Here's the way of Sarah, the freed woman, a picture of the Jerusalem that is above, the Jerusalem that has always been above, has always been the way. And then you have the way of bondage, and Hagar, the bondwoman who is cast out, a picture, an a, uh, allegory, if you will, of the two ways. And that's the Jerusalem that is below, the poor Jewish people whom God used to bring his word in, into the world, to bring his son into the world stumbled upon that rock, which we saw this morning in Isaiah 8. They stumbled upon Christ. Um, and praise God that there's a future for them, according to uh, chapter 11 of, of the book of Romans. So here is this true gospel. Jacques Lefebvre, professor in the, Paris, in, in the University of Paris in the early 16th century, a contemporary with Luther. Um, he found his way to this Pauline justification and preached what he so well designated the ineffable exchange. Oh, the ineffable exchange. The sinless one is condemned. The guilty one goes free. The blessed one bears the curse. The cursed one, the blessing. The life dies. And the dead one lives. The glory is covered in darkness. The darkness is clothed with light, the great ineffable exchange. Horatius Bonner put it this way, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, another's tears, another's griefs, on these I rest, on these alone. O Jesus, Son of God, I build on what thy cross has done for me. There both my death and life I read, my guilt and pardon there I see. Lord, I believe, O deal with me, as one who has thy word believed. I take the gift, Lord, look on me as one who has thy gift received. At this point, we might hear the voices begin to be raised, and it was raised by the Roman Catholic Church in response to Luther's exposition of of, uh, Galatians and of Romans. Well, what about James? What about James chapter 2? That seems to be quite opposite to what Paul says, doesn't doesn't it? What use is it, says James? Uh, If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm to be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You see, he goes on, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Wow, this sounds on the surface like it's quite opposite to what we have just exposited in Galatians and could also open up in the book of Romans. And this led to Luther's misstep and uh, calling the book of James a right strawy epistle, not worth our time. But is James not speaking about something entirely different than what Paul is getting at? Really, are we going to say that Paul and James are against one another, Are we going to have to swallow up Paul's salvation by faith apart from works by James and his exposition in chapter 2, or do we swallow up James uh, justifying faith that is then accomplished by works by just paying attention to Paul? As you look more closely, it is clear that the two are not at each other, but addressing two very different things. Instead of seeing them antagonistic, You ought to see them more like this. They're battling different problems in both of their situations. Paul certainly is addressing dead works. The idea that a a Jewish man or woman is going to be justified by their works and meriting their standing before God and so in part earning their salvation. Mixing, as they did, grace and works Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 rings out loud and clear, for by grace have we been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. James doesn't address dead works, he addresses dead faith. Dead faith. Faith is supposed to show itself, to to show its fruit, to, as it were, justify itself, How do I know that I've really trusted in Christ and am saved by his righteousness? There will be a work of the Holy Spirit in me that demonstrates these things, that will be accompanied with good deeds. The same Paul who says, apart from works, in the very same breath in Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which the Lord himself has prepared for us to walk in. So they're not facing off against each other, but back to back against two different enemies. Paul is battling legalism that says, I'm saved by the works of the law as the basis for my being acceptable to God in justification, that which makes a Christian a Christian. Whereas James is dealing with antinomianism. He's dealing with this idea of people who say grace, 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 but there's no change in their life, and they continue to live just like a devil. The devils believe God, he reminds them, and they tremble. Our confession puts it so well and brings the two together. Faith, in Confession of Faith 11.2, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Justification apart from works. Yet, goes on to say, it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. So this is the same gospel that was needed in the days of Paul and of James. It was the same gospel needed in the dark days of Luther and Calvin. And it's the same gospel that is needed in our day as well. I believe every age struggles with its own form of alienation from God, distance from God, separation from him, uh, varying senses of lostness, of being adrift and astray. And it's always costly. It's always painful. It is always maddening. People sense that there's more into life, more to reality than they can grasp. And they're, they're, they're feeling after it like a blind man, trying to figure out his his way. And our day is no different. I think every day has its own flavor about it, but it's still at the bottom the same thing, a sense of lostness, a sense of alienation from God. How do we have a relationship with this mysterious God that we don't know and yet we know is there? Listen to these lines that I heard recently in a contemporary setting, a contemporary band entitled Lincoln Park. And tell me what, this, this, what is needed here. Here's the lyrics. When this began, I had nothing to say, and I, and I get lost in the nothingness inside of me. I was confused. And I let it all out to find that I'm not, uh, I'm not the only person with these things in mind inside of me. But all that they can see, the words revealed, is the only real thing that I've got left to feel, nothing to lose, just stuck, hollow, and alone, And the fault is my own, and the fault is my own. Here's the refrain, I want to heal, I want to feel what I thought was never real. I want to let go of the pain I felt so long, erase all the pain till it's gone. I want to heal, I want to feel like I'm close to something real. I want to find something I've wanted all along, somewhere I belong. And I've got nothing to say. I can't believe I didn't fall right down on my face. I was confused, looking everywhere only to find that it's not the way I had imagined it all in my mind. So what am I? What do I have but negativity? Because I can't justify the way. Everyone is looking at me, nothing to lose, nothing to gain, hollow and alone, and the fault is my own, and the fault is my own. I want to heal. I want to feel what I thought was never real. I want to let go of the pain I felt so long. Erase all the pain till it's gone. I want to heal. I want to feel like I'm close to something real. I want to find something I've wanted all along. Somewhere I belong. I will never know myself until I do this on my own. Wrong turn. And I will never feel anything else until my wounds are healed. True. I will never be anything till I break away from me. I will break away. I'll find myself today. I want to heal. I want to feel like I'm close to something real. I want to find something I've wanted all along. Somewhere I belong. With the Savior, the Lord Jesus, he becomes your righteousness and your forgiveness. And much else beside. He is your healer. He is your life giver. He is your brother and he is your friend who brings you into reconciliation and adoption where you belong. You are given a new identity and a new life. The old is done away with completely. And you are given a risen heavenly life, which is far beyond your richest imagination, a life filled with meaning not just for time but for eternity and of glory because it brings you to your very creator for whom you were made. How our lost world needs this part of our Reformation faith. Our Father, thank you for your mercies. Thank you for Jesus, who has come into this world and stooped so low. He has come to save the chief of sinners. And we thank you, Lord, for this marvelous grace, the grace of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who took the sins of his people upon himself like a mighty atlas to bury them once and for all away from the sight of God and away from us so that we stand complete in the beloved one. Lord, send this message of deliverance throughout all of the earth. Help those, Lord, who recognize their need. Help those who don't recognize their need, who are hardened in pride against you. Open many, 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 many blind eyes, we pray. Soften many hearts. Bring many through the gates of paradise, which Luther and so many others like him have found, and the only way being the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Lord, help us to draw near to you, we pray, in your name. Amen.